Welcome to the Sheer Law Group's podcast of Truth Serum, law, real estate, and everything else that matters. Sheer Law Group represents lenders, landlords, and investors throughout the state of California, with offices in the San Francisco Bay Area and Orange County, California. Laws change daily. Economic trends change faster than at any time in history. Ignorance is not bliss, and the unwary and unprepared get punished if they fail to keep up. If you want insightful information on issues of interest to the real estate lender, landlord, or investor, you've come to the right place. Add on some colorful commentary on everything else that matters, and you're now ready for Truth Serum with your host, Spencer Shear. Stay tuned for Sheer Law Group's 2023 update on legal and economic trends facing lenders, landlords, trustees, and investors. There's a host of new laws and regulations that are in play in 2023, and failing to take note will cost you money and will likely raise the chances you'll face legal liability. If you mix in economic and real estate trends that raise volatility and uncertainty, you'll find that you need reliable and updated information, and SLG aims to bring that to you. Stay tuned as SLG covers trends in the real estate market. For example, new laws in 2023 governing foreclosure sales and the resales of foreclosed properties. Restricted consumer laws that mandate licensing and disclosures to consumers and their impact on landlords, lenders, and debt buyers. Bankruptcy laws and how they affect how you hold title to your real property. Mechanics lien rights and much, much more. Don't learn the hard way after you're sued. Prepare now. Listen to SLG's attorneys as they take you into 2023 with new laws and trends that are affecting real estate. Truth Serum wants to thank Hartwood House for becoming a sponsor of the Truth Serum podcast. Hartwood House is a world-class medical detoxification facility that's located in Marin County, California. Alcohol or drug addiction doesn't have to destroy your life or the ones you love. There is hope. For more information about Heartwood House, go to www.heartwooddetox.com. That's www.heartwooddetox.com. Heartwood House, where addiction meets compassion and recovery. Real Estate and Economic Trends. All right, I'm going to turn the table a little bit on you. This is your podcast. You are Spencer Shear, right? The managing partner at SLG. That's who I am. You're also a longtime and, and I guess, self-titled sage of Shear Law Group when it comes to identifying the housing market and default trends. Is that right? Is self-titled? I don't know if I quite agree with that. I thought, you know, generally acclaimed by the public to be such. But uh, yeah, self-proclaimed self, self, uh, will do for now. I agree with the title if it means anything. But So what do the economic tea leaves indicate for this coming year, 2023? Again, we're not economists. We can't give investment advice, but we do follow the economy, especially the real estate market closely because it impacts our clients. But I think we're now in the first phase of a deflationary recessionary climate in real estate. And primarily because of the extreme reduction in liquidity that's been brought on by the central banks increasing interest rates throughout the world. So this is the first phase, I think, of what you're seeing now. The liquidity is being withdrawn. 
You, you don't have to be an economic genius to see that if you pump trillions of dollars into the banking and economic system, there's going to be inflation. And not only was there massive government stimulus and central bank stimulus, but the results of the stimulus was to pump up the value of assets. So everybody became a millionaire. Your real property was worth millions. Your Bitcoin was, you know, made you into a millionaire. And uh, suddenly dubious assets like Bitcoin, Dogecoin, uh, it, it just the speculative excess just ran up. So I think as trillions of dollars of this new wealth was also uh, being factored into the financial system, it put a lot more pressure on prices upward pressure. And if you mix in supply chain disruptions and the explosive geopolitical uh, incidents like the Ukraine war, which puts a massive up, uh, upside in oil prices, and you've got inflation, you've got all the makings for that. And uh, that's clearly what's in play right now. But we're starting to see, I think, the other side of the coin, and that's the removal of the liquidity. And the result of that, I think, is going to be a more deflationary, recessionary climate. So clearly the Fed's raising interest rates, they're removing quantitative easing and uh, the bond holdings. Money is much more expensive and this puts a lot of pressure on consumer and business spending. And you're starting to see the results. Real estate's cooling off. Uh, stocks have declined, they go up and down, but the trend certainly isn't up right now. Bitcoin's being viewed as a Ponzi scheme and it looks like as consumers real income diminishes due to inflation and they burn through the reserves, maxing out credit cards, there's going to be less and less liquidity and likely more and more default. So I tend to focus with, or at least side with most of the economists who see a gradual deterioration of the economy in the first half of 2023, followed by a more pronounced recession, you know, mid to third quarter of this year. You kind of mentioned real estate there, but what about real estate prices and defaults? How about that? Uh, we've followed, I'd say I have, and I think you're you're probably uh, somewhat in agreement. We've followed A. Gary Schilling for years. He's been right on as far as prognosticating inflationary and deflationary trends. And, uh, you know, I've looked at a lot of what he said recently. He cited a few factors that I think presuppose uh, certainly a cooling off of the real estate market, if not outright deflation. Here's four of them, four of the factors that he cited I thought were compelling. Housing affordability is rapidly diminishing. If you compare what a borrower putting 20% down on a median priced home would have had to pay in a 30 year fixed rate mortgage in October of 2022, and you compare it to right now, in October of 2022, the monthly mortgage payment would have been $2,300. Again, not in California, but median all over the country. A year ago, it would have been $1,300. So it's an 80% increase. Mortgage applications are collapsing. So that's one factor. Second one, new home sales. They, they fell almost 11% in September of 2022 from August. And between January 2022 and August 22 of 2022, sales of new homes plunged 27%. So builders seem like they're trying to creatively do whatever they can to stem the tide. And they're offering discounts to investors. They're reducing prices, but sales are still diminishing and the prices are continuing to fall. Third factor, Schilling cited was commodity prices have significantly declined. You know, previously steel and lumber prices were going through the roof, now they're declining. And this indicates that the ferocious demand for home building materials and you know, housing appliances, et cetera, is abating. Good examples, prices of two by fours, uh, they're down over 70% from the peak in March of 2022. 
And the last factor that he cited, which I thought was compelling, was rentals. Because uh, not only is housing affordability diminishing, but fewer people are renting apartments in the third quarter of 2022, lowest level in 13 years. So apartment vacancies rose to 5.5% in the third quarter. This was up from the prior quarter. Looks like many people are sharing housing units. They're living with their parents. Fewer rentals means less home building, which puts negative pressure on housing prices. So Schilling sees these as factors accelerating a decline in real estate prices. I tend to agree. And I, it's going to play out over this year. We'll see. So based on what you've seen, have you seen additional evidence of increasing defaults at Shear Law Group as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anecdotally, uh, yes. I mean, Chapter 13 bankruptcy filings have increased. I saw a statistic said 32% over calendar year 2022, and they're accelerating. Doesn't bode well for consumers and consumer spending. And we're starting to see the same kind of tricks that you did pre-pandemic, where you're getting multiple bankruptcy filings, uh, borrowers transferring fractionalized interest in their properties to debtors that are in bankruptcy don't even know they're getting the transfer of their interest just to gain the, the benefit of the automatic stay. Uh, and I'm seeing it across the board, both from, uh, you know, from bankruptcy litigation to lender liability suits and eviction litigation. It's just uh, a lot more activity. And when you combine that with the massive regulatory overlay that happened because of the pandemic and the general slowdown in, in the bureaucratic and uh, the court procedures in general, and it's just a much, much tougher road for lenders to hoe now. And uh, you've got to have counsel that's experienced and can see the bigger picture, but uh, there's no doubt it's, it's uh, much more difficult. And as the defaults accelerate, I think uh, you see a little bit different climate, even though there's a lot more work and activity in the default servicing area, getting through the process is now much more difficult. Okay, interesting. Anything else you want to add to, to what's going on? Just want to say that I appreciate the people at Shear Law Group. Tough profession to be in. I appreciate everybody does a good job. I'm glad you're on board, father, son. It's a great uh, experience. Not always easy, but appreciate working with you. You as well. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for being my son. <laughs> Didn't have much of a choice, but thanks. All right. You are Josh Shear, correct? The one and only. And you're a partner and you head up the Shear Law Group Orange County office. Yes, I do. And you manage business development at Shear Law Group and you specialize in consumer and commercial bankruptcy and foreclosure litigation matters for SLG clients. Is that true? Among other things, yes. Is there more? Uh, that, that's enough for today. All right. Anyways, getting to it, there's been some very important changes in foreclosure law in California from the legislature and a lot of recent court cases Let's discuss some of the legislative changes. Uh, first, SB 1079 greatly impacted foreclosure sales in the state of California, and it was recently augmented and changed again effective January of this year. Tell our listeners some of the highlights. Okay. Uh, first, I think we got to start out with, with what SB 1079 was. It was it was really a change to the whole non-judicial foreclosure process that was intended to get single-family residences in the hands of owner-occupants. Uh, a lot of these were being bought up by fix-and-flippers, investors, and so the legislator saw a need to get these foreclosed properties added to fix-and-flippers, 
and into actual owners or for affordable housing. So the statute previously and, and currently allowed eligible bidders to bid after a non-judicial foreclosure sale. So after it occurred at the, court, at the courthouse steps, a eligible bidder, which was defined as either a current tenant, that was one option, a prospective owner occupant, or a registered nonprofit that had at least some relation to affordable housing could bid a higher amount than was actually bid at the sale. And they would obtain the property as opposed to the actual bidder at the courthouse steps. The foreclosing lender. Exactly, whether it's the foreclosing lender or a third party purchaser. So the theory, well, it was a great idea in theory. And, and the problem that resulted was there was abuse, like any statute, there was abuse of the statute by either borrowers who were delaying foreclosures by submitting fake bids, pretending to be owner occupants, pretending to be tenants, or parties taking advantage of the somewhat loose definition of what a nonprofit was by purchasing up these properties and potentially reselling them as well, just as fix and flippers. And so what AB 1837, which is the, the new statute that just went into effect on January 1st, and not surprisingly was sponsored by a land trust organization, uh, made some technical changes that primarily affect trustees, but really focused on the third category of eligible bidders, which was the nonprofits. And the idea was really just to crack down on the quote-unquote fix and flippers and the investors purchasing at sales to, to really have true nonprofits purchase at the sale and sell for affordable housing. So in a nutshell, while a nonprofit can still bid under this new statute, uh, the primary purpose of the nonprofit still has to be affordable housing, but they also have to be registered with the attorney general's office as a nonprofit. And the attorney general also keeps track of these sales and also has the authority to prosecute violations of the statute, making it basically a potential criminal liability for violating the statute, which will by itself deter a significant amount of potential purchasers, whether that's nonprofit or other, uh, but also has, has oversight that uh, will limit the use of these properties. And so in addition to the oversight by the attorney general, the properties themselves have a restrictive covenant on it. So any property that's purchased by a eligible nonprofit bidder contains a covenant that prohibits them from using it anything for anything other than affordable housing for a period of 30 years. So these there's going to be a limitation on these properties that are foreclosed on or, or, or sorry, purchased by nonprofits for a 30 year period that it has to be used either for uh, low income rent or low income housing as defined under the health and safety safety code. So Isn't that it, an oxymoron in California, low price or low rent anywhere? Uh, yeah, pretty much, but the low, at least according to uh, the standards in California. Uh, but so it's it's a, a very effective way to limit the flippers and, and limit the, the type of nonprofits that bid at these sales. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see what the effect is on, on property values and at foreclosure sales. Are you going to get as much interest at foreclosure sales uh, if you have true nonprofits bidding and, and putting limitations on the use of these houses for 30 years. 
is it going to affect the houses in the surrounding neighborhoods where all of a sudden you have low income or uh, you know rent and affordable housing properties next to other houses that aren't foreclosed on that, that we're counting on the higher values. So it'll be interesting to see how it affects the foreclosures, bidding, um, very important changes to the statute coming this year. That's true. Uh, and that change wasn't the only change to the foreclosure law statutes. Tell our listeners about recent enactment of uh, Civil Code Section 2924P affecting marketing of properties after a foreclosure by a lender. So 2924P, it, it's not quite as, uh, as talked about as, as the, the other changes that I just mentioned. Um, but it's, it's very similar. It, it applies to the eligible bidders and it Basically, the idea is for entities that foreclose on these properties, that foreclose on 175,000 or sorry, 175 or more residential real properties in California annually, that it requires that these particular institutions, uh, during the first 30 days of marketing after the foreclosure, meaning they already have this property, they've already completed their foreclosure sale, there's been no other bidders after the sale. But for the first 30 days of marketing the property, they have to market it only to these eligible bidders, which was the same ones from the prior statute, from the SB 1079 statute. The, the tenants, uh, the prospective owner occupants that are planning on living there for at least a year, and the uh, eligible nonprofits, the, the ones we just discussed with the changes that we just discussed as well. So very similar, not only can these eligible bidders bid at the sale after the sale of courthouse steps, they can also bid once the sale is complete. If the foreclosing lender or the party that purchases is uh, one of these institutions as defined under the statute, one a party that foreclosed on 175 or more residential properties annually. Let me ask a question. I just I was just thinking about that. So uh, there is a distinction though. I mean, if you're an eligible bidder after the foreclosure, and you otherwise qualify, you're going to qualify based on your eligible bid. Let's say now that uh, there there is no eligible bidder, the property does stay with the foreclosing lender, and then they're marketing that property under this new statute, uh, 2924P. Uh, just because someone's an eligible bidder, I can still take a variety of different competing bids from eligible bidders and still, it, I'm not limited to any one price they give me, correct? Uh, correct, uh, although it has to be marketed to those parties. And, and the statute is somewhat unclear as to how it's going to play out for purposes of uh, who's entitled to it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's they have an opportunity to sell it. They are the owner. They can sell it. It's not a bidding process anymore, but they have to market it to an eligible bidder for at least the first 30 days. So, so, yeah. so they get the crack at it, but bottom line, <laughs> you can still be competitive bidding. You're not stuck with any one particular bid as you would be in the foreclosure sale. It, at least how it's how it looks as as it stands. Well, you know, it, it's possible that there's going to be challenges to the statute because it's it's very unclear as to uh, how they're going to track these and force institutions to uh, only market to these individuals. So it, it completely takes away from the idea of of just a you know free market of selling properties to the highest bidder uh, when you're only marketing it to a particular type of individual or entity for the first 30 days. Radical changes to the free market. All right, let's switch over to some recent controversial case law, the Honchera versus FJM private mortgage fund case. The uh, 
California a fifth a district court of appeals case caused a lot of controversy for lenders charging default interest in loans in California. So assuming that you're authorized to charge default interest on a non-consumer loan, a Honchura case provides that in almost all instances, a lender can only do so if, if the loan's matured, which I th I'll drill down with you in a minute on. But why is this such a big issue for lenders who are foreclosing and have charged default interest? So this is probably the most, I say the most talked about case from 2022 for at least for private lenders who, who charge default interest on their loans and, and kind of count on this for part of the amounts they, they end up getting if there's a default. Uh, just last week, it was confirmed that the Supreme Court of California is not reviewing this case. So it is good law, at least binding in the particular appellate district, which in this case is the first district. Um, but, you know, to, to address the question regarding, you know, default interest, at least as the maturity date, um, the case is somewhat instructive. Most lenders charge default interest as, as of the maturity. Um, but this case was not entirely clear on that issue. And I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, but really what, what it hammered down on is default interest is not allowed, according to this court, even for non-consumer loans uh, in the scenarios where the damages are unrelated to the damages caused by the breach. So basically what the court did, they looked at you know, the, the statute, which is Civil Code 1671. They said even for a non-consumer loan, the party has to show that the amount that is being charged, the default amount, was unreasonable under the circumstances existing at the time of the contract uh, for it to be invalid. And here, this particular case, the Hontrail case, the lender, they had a 10% late fee on a missed payment. And then they also, on top of that late fee, they had a 9.99% default interest fee that was assessed on the entire principal balance. So basically what they were doing is they were charging a late fee for missing your payment. And then they were charging a default interest rate, almost a 10% a rate higher than the actual interest rate, but not just on that missed payment, on the entire principal balance, which is you know, standard, relatively standard in the industry. Uh, but what the court said is that second fee, that 9.99% default interest rate, uh, didn't bear any relation to the actual damages that the lender was suffering as a result. So, you know, they, they took issue with this, uh, and, you know, in the court's opinion, they said there's no relation to the actual default. And it's really just a penalty, which penalties aren't aren't allowed in this scenario. All right, so let, penalty... let me let me jump in for a second on that one, because I, I wonder about this. And I've talked to various clients about this. What happens if you had a legitimate concern, for example, in this changing interest rate environment where uh, the cost of money could be significantly more for lenders uh, now and holding properties uh, could cause significant damage? Could you write in the contract? I uh, let's say a lender right now, starting from day one, that uh, because the cost of money is increasing and values of real properties are fluctuating, that we've negotiated this default interest rate and jump up in price. Would that uh, satisfy the Hanchero arguments or no? Uh, it depends what it's being charged for. So, I mean, generally, the test is going to be, does it bear a, a reasonable relationship for the loss of the lender? So if you can negotiate that at the onset, and you're analyzing that and detailing it and documenting it, then there's a possibility, assuming, <clears throat> again, it's being charged on the, the maturity, the entire balance, meaning the loan's already matured. It's the loss of money. You can't use that money at the maturity. You're anticipating the additional loss might be an you know, 8%, 9 10% above your original interest rate as a result. 
And maybe, maybe that's enforced. And there is some case law that allows that in that scenario, assuming it was negotiated, assuming it's well documented. The problem with this case, again, it was it was based on a mispayment. It's it's a little more or a lot more hard uh, to dif- to uh, to you know uh, detail the uh, the loss that would be suffered as a result of a mispayment when you already are are obtaining the late fee as a result of the mispayment. So you got a late fee plus you got the default interest on the entire balance, yet you've only missed one payment. And that's really what the court looked at. There's no relation to the missed payment. There's a relation to a essentially a penalty in that scenario. Well said. Any other comments on the, the infamous Sanchero case? Uh, is, you know, I, I'd be cautious as, as a lender, at least, You'd be cautious even on, on charging these on the maturity without, you know, like you discussed, uh, going through it and really, you know, at the onset, looking at the, the reason and the relation to the default. It's not just a, a uh, the court didn't specify that it was just a, a free, free reign to charge it on maturity. It just said it could be allowed in those particular situations, but it still has to bear that relation that we talked about, that reasonable relationship. Great. Uh, all I can say, I'm duly impressed both with your analysis and the fact that you're my son. Thank you for this information. Anything else you want to add before we end this interview? Uh, that's it for me. Thank you. Bankruptcy, real property, and mechanics lien issues. All right. You're Riley Wilkinson, correct? That is correct. You're a partner in one of the bankruptcy specialists for Shear Law Group. Is that correct? Absolutely. And how many years have you been at Shear Law Group? Oh, I think where I'm coming up on my 16th year. Whoa. Right? You know, at the risk of an answer I might not like, how do you like it at SLG? I love it. I wouldn't be here for 16 years if I didn't enjoy it. I love that answer. I really do. All right, let's get to it. Uh, bankruptcy law can impact every area of law. It draws in real estate, criminal, mechanics, lien law, family law, just to mention a few. So let's take family law and community property law, for an example. Under California law, if a husband owns separate real property and the wife files bankruptcy, the ownership interest of the husband in his separate property is safe from the creditors and the trustee in bankruptcy, right? No, it's not accurate. Um, I, wait, it's not, I'm wrong? You are right. There's a first for everything, I guess. Uh, <laughs> title doesn't control. The recent California Supreme Court case of Brace versus Spear uh, held that Title doesn't control and jointly owned property is community property in a dispute with a bankruptcy trustee. So what does that mean? That the trustee can then solve it? doesn't mean that the uh, husband, in my scenario, who owns the separate property gets aced out of his interest. It just means that the trustee can solve the asset, right? That's accurate. That means that they, for the purposes of the, the bankruptcy trustee, they view the property as being held in community property and not necessarily how it's uh, being held on title. So the wife's community property interest, even though it's technically in the name of the husband, can be sold for the benefit of uh, the wife's creditors and the husband gets his interest as well, correct? Correct. It basically said the family code community property presumption trumps the evidence code, that, uh, however, it's held on title. Interesting. Anything else you want to add to that? No, is it, there is uh, a another case that came down in Illinois, in Illinois which provides that uh, if if the property is held jointly with a right of survivorship, 
that say a debtor files bankruptcy, has a spouse who did not file, if that debtor passes away while they're in bankruptcy, the trustee can't attach that property because the estate doesn't own anything. Then The right of survivorship goes to the individual who's not in bankruptcy and therefore there's nothing for the estate. Or more, even more to the point is that uh, because the debtor died, there's there's nobody to, uh, the debtor debtor's estate can't collect anything because there's nobody there, right? That's true, yes. So it's in the interest of the creditors to keep that debtor alive, right? <laughs> yeah, that's one way of looking at it. Yes, Spencer. Very good. Uh, how about this? How about the impact of a bankruptcy on mechanics liens? For example, in California, if a contractor doesn't file suit on a recorded mechanics lien in 90 days, the, the lien is extinguished. Does the filing of a bankruptcy by a property owner change this? No, it doesn't. Um, there are a lot of situations in which filing of a bankruptcy tolls a period for a creditor to pursue their rights. Uh, bankruptcy, as you know, can go from up to five years, sometimes longer if it's a chapter 11. Um, however, in the situation of a mechanics lien, which can be very technical and you have to meet certain deadlines in order to maintain and preserve your rights and your lien, you have to file a notice in the bankruptcy under 546 in order to preserve your right and toll that period. And that notice has to be filed within that 90-day period. If you don't file the notice, then you're out of luck and you lose that lien. Yeah, I saw there's this case. That's why I was asking about it called uh, 450 Southwestern Avenue. It's a BAP Ninth Circuit case where uh, they held that the fact that somebody recorded a lien uh, in after the bankruptcy was filed was insufficient. Do you remember that case? I do. And that, that, that case uh, explains what I just said pretty pretty clearly. What I would say about that case is that it's a bankruptcy appellate case. And so it's not binding, but it is informative and instructive on how to act. If, if we have a client or the creditor has a mechanics lien and that 90-day period is going to run, it, we advise that you'd be filing a notice under 546 in order to preserve that right and put everyone on notice that... Uh, that you are going to be proceeding with your mechanics lien and it should not be extinguished. So even if the bankruptcy lasted for years and the creditor, uh, the mechanics lien uh, creditor was required to have filed suit within 90 days, as long as they file that notice before the expiration of the 90 days, their right to continue to file that suit and impose that lien will continue. That's correct. But if they don't file it within those 90 days, the 90 days from when that lien was recorded, then that lien will be extinguished. Great. Thank you. You got it. All right, on to the next expert, Mr. Timothy Silverman. That's it. That's that's uh, the full extent of Riley. I, I was uh, I was trying to learn something. We're just doing vignettes here right now. I mean, the, the vast wealth of knowledge uh, that he has is virtually untapped. But for right now, that we don't want to overburden everybody's cranium. So that shot was not appreciated, Tim. But go ahead, I'll listen in to see how you do. <laughs> Consumer and eviction laws impacting lenders and landlords. You're Tim Silverman, correct? I am. And you're a partner and a litigator extraordinaire for Sheila Group, correct? I'm certainly a partner and a litigator, that's for sure. All right, humble and modest as well. How many years have you been with Sheila Group? A little over six years now. All right, and before that, you were a partner in your own firm, right? I was for about 22 years. Very good. And you focus on commercial and consumer litigation for Sherlock Group's lender, investor, and business clients, right? That's right. right, Let me set a little background here for the question I'm going to ask you. Uh, The landscape for consumer collections in the state of California has changed radically. 
and licensing is now required for debt collectors in California. There's numerous state and federal regulations that require multiple disclosures and warnings whenever there's contact with a consumer on a consumer loan. And there's significant monetary penalties if anyone violates these requirements. So many lenders and creditors are probably not even aware they're violating the law when they're communicating with consumers. So let's take evictions for an example. Uh, is serving a notice to quit after a default on a lease and asking for rent or damages uh, a violation of the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act if you don't give appropriate disclosures? It is. And I think that's uh, that's an area where a lot of people don't necessarily see it as a uh, a need for involvement of the F FDCPA because asking for uh, rent is sometimes not necessarily seen as uh, as a debt in its classic sense, as you might see under a, a credit card or uh, some other sort of consumer debt. But however, uh, asking for rent is pursuant typically to a lease, a written contract, and so it's an obligation. And under current case law, uh, it is a, an obligation that's seen as a, a as a debt. And because it's seen as a debt under the FDCPA, you do need to make the certain disclosures required, just like other creditors would for collection of a uh, classic debt. And that would include uh, serving a debt validation letter. You know, I looked at some of the, the case law that you're citing, and it, again, I... It's non-binding Ninth Circuit authority, but it seems like it's illustrative of, of where the courts are going. Would you agree? Absolutely. It's just a matter of time before the Ninth Circuit, which is the, uh, the, the court of appeals that sits above all of the lower courts, they're going, to, they're going to address this at some point and make law that will be binding on all the lo other lower circuits. All right, so let's switch. Is the law any different than what you just described if you're serving a notice to quit on a consumer after a foreclosure instead of a default on a lease. It is. And, you know, again, it's a, it may seem like a matter of semantics to some people because you're asking for uh, money that might be owed by somebody who's occupying real property. But there's a major difference under the law. In the situation that we talked about before, you're talking about past due rent that might be due uh, according to a lease. Now, when that person after a foreclosure sale continues to occupy the property, it's no longer pursuant to a lease. They're occupying the property. Uh, and so they have to pay the reasonable value of the occupation of the property. And under the law, as opposed to it being seen as an obligation and therefore a debt under the Federal Debt Collection Practices Act, is seen as holdover damages or fair rental, fair value for the occupation of the property during the period of time after the foreclosure sale. And because it's seen as holdover damages versus an obligation, the uh, the creditor seeking those holdover damages does not have to comply with the same sort of regulations that somebody collecting a rent obligation does. Yeah, it doesn't mean that you couldn't serve the FDCPA notices and disclosures uh, in an abundance of caution, though, does it? Absolutely. For the price of the stamp, oftentimes you can take a conservative or a more prudent standpoint and serve that notice. You're not uh, under any obligation to, but still, if you feel that it's uh, the prudent way to proceed, you can do that. You're uh, certainly going to find yourself in more hot water for failing to serve a notice as opposed to failing to serve too much notice. Okay, good. How about let's switch over to some new laws about debt buyers or Debt buyers or creditors who buy delinquent or charged off consumer loans. Uh, 
there's some new laws that are applicable to them. Can you give a little summary to anybody who might be interested in that as a debt buyer? The California legislature is historically very consumer protection oriented. And so a lot of the rogue collectors over the years are not necessarily collecting on their own debts. They're collecting on debts that they purchase from other creditors. And these, these types of creditors are called debt buyers. And so oftentimes the complaints that are being made to the state that they're trying to protect are, I'm getting phone calls or I'm getting letters from people I don't even know that I owe debts to. And where are these? I don't recognize this name. And so they've gone out of their way to be very specific about uh, enacting a law that is uh, relates to debt buyers. And so these debt buyers are now, they have to have a, a, a debt collector's license. And so they're gonna be licensed under the state of California. And then they, they've uh, enacted civil code section 1788.52, which is specifically related to uh, things that the debt buyer must do in order to collect debts in the state of California. Disclosures primarily before they can collect. Disclosures and not only disclosures, but before they're able to collect, they need to have certain things in their possession. They need to have a copy of the contract or they need to have what was provided to the consumer by the by the previous creditor. They need to have the balance. They need to have the uh, the date of default. There's a whole host of information that the debt buyer must have in their possession before they can even begin to collect. And if they fail to do so and it's discovered by the state, they can be fined or penalized heavily. So debt buyers beware. Debt buyers beware. All right. One more thing. While I have your formidable cranial powers here, Taps, I want to understand one thing. I just said th this is really uh, flummoxed me, for lack of a better word, if there is such a word. But uh, you you won the Fantasy League Championship for Sheer Law Group, did you not? I did. And we were in the finals, and you roundly beat me into a pulp, correct? Uh, well, you know, it was a, it was a sound beating nonetheless. And uh, you know, again, uh, we're uh, here in the Southern California office. We're, we're certainly happy to take on whatever competition the Northern California office wants to bring uh, and uh, willing to take on all comers. And, you know, we're very happy that you provided us with the, the trophy, even though it was broken by one of the prior owners. And uh, we'll make sure that that's fixed because it, it's going to occupy a, a permanent place of honor here in our office. Permanent. That's such a permanent word. Let me ask you one question. And again, no pun intended, but if Jalen Hurts, who was on my team, wasn't hurt, uh, would the outcome uh, have been different? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, you know, certainly we'll, uh, we'll have to take a look at some of the, the dubious trades that were made along the way. But, uh, you know, apparently your opponent was uh, had Josh Allen, who was actually a, a little bit step above Jalen Hurts. We'll examine that at a later date. Mr. Silverman, thank you. Thank you. Truth Serum wants to thank Iron Oak Home Loans for becoming a sponsor of the Truth Serum podcast. Iron Oak's a full-service portfolio private money lender, and it's a servicing company. It's located in San Ramon, California, helping its investors to achieve maximum return by investing primarily in California real estate. For borrowers, not all borrowers have AAA credit and sometimes need a lender who understands and who can get you a loan when you need Great service and great people. If you want more information, go to www.ironoak1.com. That's www.ironoak1.com.
Thank you for listening to Sheer Law Group's podcast, Truth Serum, law, real estate, and everything else that matters. For more on the law, go to www.shearlawgroup.com or contact Spencer or Joshua Shear. For more info on real estate, see your real estate broker or agent. Don't forget to mow your lawn, trim your hedges, and pay your mortgage. For more information on everything else that matters, read good books, cultivate good friends that you can share ideas with, pray often, and do not place your hopes in governmental institutions. Write Spencer Shear if you want to argue the points made in this podcast. Finally, this podcast cannot be relied on as legal advice, and SLG disclaims any responsibility for the ideas presented. See an attorney if you have issues or problems related to the subjects mentioned in this podcast. Adios, amigos. Adios, amigos.